0: A service year is a paid opportunity to develop real-world skills through hands-on service. Explore thousands of available service year opportunities at serviceyear.org podcast. Welcome back to Rebuilding America, produced in partnership with New Politics. Our series is over now, 10 episodes focused on national service, but a few weeks ago I was honored with the National Conference on Citizenship's HUA Award. The award is meant to recognize a veteran who defines citizenship through service. Since our series is all about service, the ways in which it manifests and the people who pursue it for the betterment of our country, we decided that the best way to celebrate this award was with a bonus episode of Rebuilding America. On Veterans Day last month, I held a live streamed conversation with two servant leaders and past recipients of the HUA Award, Becky Margiata and Mike Washington. What follows is that live recording. Enjoy, and thank you for listening to Rebuilding America. I could not be happier to introduce our two guests today, Becky Marciata, and Mike Washington. And, and I'll let you all a little bit behind the curtain of podcasting. Normally, when I do this, I have a couple of monitors, one that has a list of my research notes, one in which my producer is communicating with me, but we're live today and we're on video. So I've taken this as, as an excuse to leave the notes behind, to Just look at you all and to have a heart-to-heart conversation with Becky and Mike about their understanding of citizenship, why they think they were nominated for and awarded the NCOC award. And I will start with Mike, the most recent NCOC uh, HUA award winner uh, in 2019. I got that right, Mike, right? Last year. Um, And... I asked Mike and Becky in particular, from that whole list of prior award winners to join me today because I have known them a long time. I have always looked up to them, always admired their personal commitment to service uh, and their, their personal stories. And Mike, I'll, I'll give you a chance to give a little bit of, of your background because every time I've asked you to share it, and you've been on one of my shows before, we've gotten just so much feedback. But what I want you to work towards is this idea of citizenship as a duty to one another. So we'll start with who is Mike Washington? How did you get where you are? And how did you develop such a deep and abiding sense of service and service as an element of citizenship?
1: Well thanks, Ken, and congratulations. I can't think of anybody better. And it makes me think even more, how the hell did I get it last year? (laughs) Uh, You know, but I know how I got it last year because I made Chris Marvin breakfast in Houston. Uh, during our Hurricane Relief and Team Rubicon. Apparently the bacon and eggs I made for him were just so good that he's just remembered that. But uh, yeah, so I come from a family of military service. My wife, Valerie, is an army veteran. My daughter, Asia, army veteran, and now an ICU nurse in Georgia. My son-in-law, Eric, is still in the army. Uh, My father was a Marine, my brother is a Marine, I'm a Marine, my son was a Marine. He was killed in action in Afghanistan following that sense of service to the country, showing up when your country needs you, just showing up because you never know when your country's gonna need you. And the lineage goes on further back from, uh, in, in our history. And like I, I shared uh, last year in my acceptance speech, this service does not have to be in a uniform carrying a weapon. We were talking before, uh, before we started to record, I was congratulating the organizations on on the voter turnout that we had that shaped the election and is turning our country around, which is so, so very important. And that had nothing to do with carrying a weapon. That meant young men and women uh, getting out there, knocking on doors, talking to people, energizing the uh, voter base and people who felt disenfranchised. That's citizenship in, in its purest form, I think. There There is a place to... Uh, protect the republic, I think, and to export our ideals of democracy and who we are as America and who we want to be. But there's also, it takes the men and women who went out there and did that hard work. I just can't imagine that. But it was great, and it made a difference. That's the important thing, is letting people know that this makes a difference. So showing up, doing that work, uh, we need it. We absolutely need it. Because at the end of the day, uh, yeah, I'm a veteran. Yesterday, I was riding Engine 27 in Seattle. I I work at the fire department. I was cleaning toilets and pushing a broom, uh, cleaning up the station, because that's what we do. So it takes all of us, everybody that's in this room right now, everybody who's listening, because if you're listening, we're all cut from the same cloth. And sometimes that's a military cloth. Sometimes that's just a good citizenship cloth. Sometimes it's a Team Rubicon response cloth. But we all are like-minded, and we all know we want to move this country forward. I have a saying in, in my world 3.5 3.5 yards of carry. If we can just keep going back and hitting the hitting that hole, 3.5 yards of carry, we get a first down and we move the chains and we move a little bit further. Well, I think we got more than 3.5 last Tuesday, and I'm really happy about that. And that's because of the work of all the citizens who are listening to us right now. So that's what citizenship means to me. That's my lineage, and Ken, uh, I, I, I'm just so proud, so, so proud to know you so proud to know you and uh man when i heard your name i'm going like it just made me think more They're like how the hell did i get this and you know
0: <laughs> the feeling is mutual mike you mentioned the the elections and, and i think it goes without saying that we experienced one of the most traumatic election seasons in in living memory perhaps of all time at least going back to the mid 19th century uh becky as fraught as this political season has been, what are your do you, do you see silver linings? do you see any opportunities for uh, for rebuilding, for healing the show that we are? Uh, recording now is Rebuilding America about the things we can do as citizens to not just recognize these fractures, but to begin to repair them. At the Billions Institute, I want you to talk a little bit about that. Uh, you teach and support foundations and nonprofit executives and the important work they're doing. What is the opportunity before us wearing that hat, but being clear eyed about the, the difficult? times we're we're living in right now
2: and thank you and congratulations again i I actually just recorded a little loom about this myself about this idea of we sort of fixate on the w's and the l's and those are important milestones and there is their power shifts kind of you know not really like i think this last four years also for me has been illuminating about the all of the ways that our government is designed structurally to allow obstruction and to actually uh, enable people to not do the jobs we thought we hired them to do, which is you know obstruction. And so I think uh, structurally, many of the flaws that prevent our government from actually tending to the welfare of the people and the defense of our country have been just laid bare, right? And so there's, there's in some ways, we can't not see that now. And I do hope that we can address some of those, even the fact that President-elect isn't receiving national security briefings right now, right? That to me, I think for people who are, who are sincerely concerned about national security, that should raise alarms. So all of this obstructionism has been laid bare and now we know it, right? And so the W's and the L's, those feel good in the moment. But even, so I worked for four years on a campaign that worked with 186 cities to get 100,000 people off the streets and into permanent housing. And I put four years of my life, every single moment to it, every single day. And I didn't know when we would hit the 100,000th person, but I knew it was eminent. And I told our junior person on the team who was the bean counter, I said, hey, Jessica, when we hit 100,000, You get the phone call. You get the whole team on the conference call. You're the one who's going to call it, right? And like, you just surprise all of us. And she was really excited about that. And then one day I got the call from Jessica and she was like, hey, Becky, stand by. I'm going to get everybody else on the line. And I was like, oh, I know what's coming, right? Something I'd worked for for four years was going to come to fruition. And Jessica said, got everybody on the line. It's about a 13-person team. And then she was like, you guys, we did it. You know, we got the 100,000. Everyone was like, woo, and all excited. And I was, I literally was so caught up with, I had like a lump in my throat, the size of Texas and I couldn't even speak. And I was like the leader and went to West Point and this would be the time for a rousing speech. And I literally couldn't talk and had this, this like, wow, you can really make a difference in the world. Just euphoria going through my body. And then, uh, so I literally didn't say anything. And then everyone on the team was like, all right, cool. See you tomorrow. (laughs) And they hung up. So literally we had this huge moment and I didn't say a word. And then, I swear, I just got right back on the phone because I had another phone call to make, right? And is right back to work. And so we think these WNLs are, are significant. It is significant. Biden won by more than 5 million votes. It's the largest turnout ever in history. It's the largest uh, popular vote, um, I think, in like, dozens and dozens of years, right? So it, it is huge and we should celebrate. And I think then it's just stick your nose to the grindstone and get right back to work because there's actually larger, bigger things beyond the W's and L's, regardless of who's in power, despite the obstructionism that I think those of us who feel called to look after one another and look after the whole, which is, I don't know the extent to which that value is widely shared. In the United States at this point, quite frankly, I think individualism is is a rot that's rotting us at the foundation. But those of us who do feel called towards collectivism and to mutual care, mutual concern, the work never ends, no matter how the W's and the L's line up. And yay for the W and nose back to the grindstone.
0: Becky, I I love hearing you talk about being called to look after one another. Because one of the things that strikes me about about both of your leadership styles is that it's not academic. Your understanding of of service uh, is not just some intellectualized thing. It's very it's very hands on. It's very engaged. Mike, uh, who was a master sergeant in the Marine Corps. Just talked about cleaning toilets as a uh, captain in his Seattle Fire Department uh, station house. Becky, you have had skin in the game in every job you've had in the last 100,000 homes in a very literal sense. Can you share the, the tattoo story? I don't know if it's like on the forearm or somewhere you can show it, but I, I love that as a a living reminder that you got to put your skin in the game.
2: Absolutely. And you got to clean toilets, too. I think that's, uh, (laughs) Michael, hats off to you and all of us. That shouldn't be anything that we're above doing, right? And so we decided when we launched the 100,000 Homes campaign that we should embed celebration into it. And when I had said at the very beginning, when the 10,000 person moved in, that I would get a tattoo of the 10,000 with the holding place for the last zero. And it wasn't a foregone conclusion that we would reach 100,000 people in housing. So when the 10,000 person moved in, I got I got this tattoo. I'll cover the last zero. And for a couple years of my life, when people would see this, they would kind of gasp that there was a comma error <laughs> in, in my tattoo. And then when the 100,000 person for,
0: for those on the radio, it's it's one zero zero comma zero zero. Uh, going into hun- the 100,000th homes. It looks weird, but then what happens?
2: Well, then when the 100,000th person moved in, which also, there was a good period of time when we were on track to be the 30,000 homes campaign. And I was like, yeah, I got a tattoo.
1: <laughs> Go on.
2: <laughs> and, uh, and I would joke like, if, if we don't do it, it'll be a lifelong testament to failure that I'll just have this story to tell. And you know what? There is no failure. That's another thing I think it's an important point is anything that's moving the ball forward, like Michael, I love your three and a half feet analogy there. Anything that moves the ball forward, Forward, it's like six inches, a foot. I'll take it. And um, but this has the last zeros on there now. So, and I think it is important to build in celebration. We should celebrate. We should celebrate. We should celebrate the massive voter turnout, even if you're on the other side, whichever side you're on. Of whichever side, I think I've given away my side. Yay, voter turnout! This is all good, right? Like our voter turnout is abysmal in our country, and it, it took a real uptick this time. And I think that's fantastic.
0: Mike, the question I want to ask you about. Citizenship is reflective of, of Becky's observation that we need to be celebratory, uh, but I, I want you to talk about the need to sometimes be brutally honest. When I think about the work that that you do on a, on a daily basis, some of it formal, some of it just talking to to your peers or, or vets that I know who've reached out to you about the trauma that sometimes goes with assuming that burden of service and that, that burden of sacrifice. It is not always a celebratory thing. It's sometimes a very painful thing to, to shoulder that burden for your country, to live a life of service to others. I want you to give the context here, if you don't mind me asking you to do it, about the loss of your son. And then talk about how you have channeled that into saving so many other lives.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, gosh, you know, the, in, my, in my family, service has been a, a choice. You know, my son came up in a, in a uh, upper middle class bringing. He had he could have gone to college. My daughter could have gone to college. So they had choices. And I think my son saw the, the legacy and the camaraderie that the Marine Corps brought and that the service brought. And he wanted to be part of it. And he, when I came back from my last tour of duty overseas, the two of us did that great father son road trip down to Southern California. And we were listening to an NPR broadcast on the fighting in Fallujah at the time. And one of the Marines that were being, that was being interviewed, uh, it sounded like the, the, the reporter wanted him to say that he didn't know what was going on. I'm scared. I don't know what's happening. And, you know, this Marine was just kind of like, you know, I'm here with, with my best friends where I think we're doing good work here. And uh, I think it's important that we're here. And yeah, I get scared sometimes, but quite frankly, there's, this is where I belong. And I looked over at my son and I kind of got the impression that whatever ideas about college that he had, had gone out the window, especially when his, his sister went in the army, there's no way he's going to go to college and his sister's in the army. And I asked him, I said, you know, my, my car, you, you're you're gonna go in the marine corps aren't you and he kind of looked at me sheepishly because his mom and i have been kind of uh you know pushing college on him he goes yeah dad and i go okay and i said you know you don't have to do that right you don't there's no you don't have to do anything i'm proud of you you're you're a great kid you took care of a lot of business when i was uh played overseas my last couple years in, in the marine corps and uh you know, just really stood up and was was a, just a great young man, you know, just a good kid. I said, you know, you don't have to prove anything to me. You're, man, I'm so proud of you already. So why do you want to join the Marine Corps? You know, why do you want to do that? And he goes, well, because there's people out there who need to be protected. And sometimes that means carrying a rifle. And I, I know that sometimes it takes being in a Marine Corps and being that person. And I, I couldn't find fault with that reasoning. I couldn't say, well, yeah, but that's for somebody else to do, or yeah, not you, son. And I and I was filled with pride, and I'm still filled with pride at his his logic for going in, and at the same time, I had that dread because I'd been out there, and, and of course, you know, going through all those changes when he was killed in action, you know, looking at myself and what was my contribution to this, but at, at the end of this journey or on this part of the journey that I'm on now, I understand. And that's his picture right behind me. I understand that he was doing what he was supposed to be doing. He was being a citizen. This was his, his initial steps in citizenship. But it started when he was a, a teenager, when he was a child, when he would cut the lawns of uh, you know, some elderly neighbors without being told to and things like that. You know, So his citizenship started early. And it manifested itself in the maturity in the Marine Corps and going overseas. And who knows what that would have looked like now. But in the grand scheme of things, it was his motivation that helped save my life and allowed me to reach out and extend my work beyond carrying a rifle, beyond being on a fire engine, now being a therapist to first responders and uh, and veterans and people in the military. So I, I think that's where his citizenship continues to give. It's not a, it doesn't end for him. It continues through me It motivates me. Uh, He's there with me a lot. And I think that's where where it comes in. And of course, now I'm allowed to kind of share my story and make sure that people don't, they understand that, you know, being a firefighter, being a a first responder, police officer, veteran, when you sign up there, it's fraught with not just physical danger, but there's mental health issues that, We just so for so long have just kind of, nope, there's none, just man up, just cowboy up and just be that person. Well, that's how we end up with the issues we have now. So now I'm able to kind of come in and say, hey, here's what you're going to face. Here's how we work with it. It's okay to be human and feel these feelings that you have after the things you've seen and the things you've done. You have a community here. And it's just like this community that I'm looking at right now, all these faces and, and these names. Like I said before, we're all cut from the same cloth. We're doing good. We're doing hard work for America. We're moving the ball 3.5 yards carry. Mine used to be in, in the Marine Corps uniform. And then it's December 30th, my last shift. It was as a firefighter. Now it's as a therapist. So I'm pushing the ball forward. Everybody I'm looking at right now is pushing that ball forward. Sometimes it's tough yards. It ain't easy. You get beat up. But we get back in the huddle, we call a play, line up, we run it again, and we just keep going. Next thing you know, we move the chains, we're in the end zone. But it takes all of us. It takes all of us, all the people I'm looking at right now and the people who can hear me. If you're listening, it's because you're one of us. And whatever it is is you're, where you're at in your journey right now, you're not by yourself. If you need help, man, we're a team. So let's keep doing it, and we keep moving it forward. Man, we're all citizens, and we're doing great work.
0: Thanks for sharing, Mike, uh, and and I think your story and Mike Jr.'s story really capture this idea that that service to each other, that sense of duty to your fellow citizens, uh, really can become service to the country. And Becky, I want to ask you about that because you, you broke through your own barriers in the Army. I uh, would love it if you could share some of that experience but reflect for us on this idea that that service to your to your fellow citizens taken to its logical end is really service to the country it's it's patriotic
2: yeah absolutely and I just also sorry my, I just want to say Michael my, I'm like my heart is aching for your loss and I'm I'm in awe of how you're channeling that love for your son into other people so thank you
1: Well. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: That is that is what it's all about. I feel terrible about that. Um, well, you know, when I was a plebe at West Point, <laughs> um, one of the exercises they had us do uh, was write on a three by five card where we think we'll be in ten years, and then they they had like a platoon bulletin board, and they just stapled everybody's up, so you could see where people think they're going to be in ten years. And I had wrote that I thought I would be in the Peace Corps. <laughs> and uh, that did not go over well at West Point. <laughs> and my, my maiden name is Canis. And so, you know, they called me. That was what I wasn't Becky, you know, for a year. I was Cadet Canis or New Cadet Canis, whatever the case may be. And I got hazed for Canis is going to be in the Peace Corps. What the, you know, and there was like, I got a lot of, a lot of heat for that. And for me, I was like, yeah, this is service to the country, that's service to the country. What difference does it make? You know, to me, that felt like not, uh, I had no cognitive dissonance about being at West Point and then having aspirations at some point to be in the Peace Corps. And so I've always thought that that was, it was all about service. And in fact, even, I don't know what it is now, but we had to memorize the, the mission of the military academy. And it was something along the lines of uh, to generate a, a, a crew of people who are committed to a lifetime of service to the nation. And whether it's in the military or outside of the military. And and I already, sound like I, I learned that at West Point. I brought that with me to West Point and it was just resonant with the values there. It's just always, I don't know, it's just always been part of what I think of. And, and I will say that I don't consider myself a religious person, but I do consider myself a very spiritual person. And if I, whatever that I do that would be kind of akin to prayer, uh, there's really just kind of only one prayer that I say, which is may I be of service. May what I'm doing be of service both to my fellow human beings, but also just to the evolution of our species, to the well being of the whole, to the collective. And I personally don't even dis- differentiate around nation states in any way, but like that, like that, it's just, May whatever it is I'm doing that's that's got me busy be of service to the healing to the repairing of the world. It's the Jewish notion of tikkun olam, which I, again is not my tradition, but really resonates with me, or the Taoist notion of of that we're just we're all one anyways. Like every spiritual tradition points to this one truth that we we are all one, and that that even quantum physics points to the, this notion of separateness is, is an illusion. And so I think what, what I aspire to in literally in every single thing in my daily life is to, to remember that truth that is lost in the busyness of our day-to-day lives and the lies that we get told all the time. Just to remember that, that I am part of the whole, I am the universe temporarily taking the form of a human being and all my actions have reverberations throughout the web of life. And, and at any given time, my intention is to be part of repairing and healing the web of life and is the importance of facing into the ways in which I'm part of fraying or tearing at the fabric of life and to make amends for that, to acknowledge that and, and get back to repairing. So for me, that's like the the thing I come back to again and again and again. And so service just is a natural byproduct of that. And I think it's a shift from selfishness to service, right? And, and um, that I hope is... Can be like talk about spreading large scale change. May that be more contagious? Of how may I be of service? How can I support you? How can I show up for you? Forgive me if I'm blabbering. I saw this great. I'm into TikTok. I feel like it's keeping me young. I'm 51 years old, but like it's it's keeping me cool. I saw this great TikTok about how. Uh, it's really short about how people think that it's like Republican versus Democrat or left versus right. And he said, really, you've got this impulse to protect and conserve and preserve on one side. And then you've got this instinct to nurture and look after one another and, and care for one another on the other side. It's like, a, And he said, it's really a masculine feminine divide. And that this person suggested and I, I, I don't know his name to give him credit. What if that impulse to protect and preserve protected and preserved the people who had the impulse to to nurture and to care for one another? What if instead of Going against that, it was protecting and preserve that of like, hey, we're going pre- to th- put th- these, are, these are our Black people. <laughs> these are our Indigenous people. These are our women and children. We're going to protect them. Right. And so, so I see that sheepdog mentality and people who volunteer for the service, but it's directed generally, you know, the military is not supposed to work domestically. Right. It's just directed in preserving American interests abroad. I would love to see that desire to protect fully coming at um, and supporting all of these, you know, like, let's protect, these are our immigrants, you know, (laughs) like that shift, we would, America would be unstoppable. We would be a force to be reckoned with right now. I think we're actually really weak, but wouldn't that be exciting if we could, if we could pull that off? And I don't know what's the jujitsu move to pull that off, but that would be kind of awesome.
0: Since we've got three vets uh, in this conversation, I'm going to provoke uh, a discussion that i think you only really get to have among vets and and i want to i want to share it with everyone and it's this idea of the risk of overvalorizing vets and i really think veterans day is the day to have it especially as we're facilitating this conversation about citizenship because becky you talked about the peace corps as being equally um, high-minded in terms of service, as as your time in in that army uniform, Mike. You've spent the second half of your career saving uh, saving lives as a as a counselor and before. Well, continuing as a as a fire captain. I worry looking at how veterans were deployed, and I'm putting that in air quotes during this election season. Uh, that we're we're really overindulging this tendency to valorize the veteran and to use the veteran for political purposes and to put them on a pedestal. Mike, you and I have talked about it before. What do you think the long-term risks are of that, of creating a separate veteran
1: class? Well, I think we're in this position right now as a consequence of Vietnam, the post-Vietnam situation, where there was no recognition at all of that war. It was a bad war. We're not going to talk about it. And if we do, it's not going to be good for those veterans who fought in Vietnam. And I think that pendulum started to swing with Desert Storm. And now it's kind of oddly swung in a different direction like it is now. And and you're right, though. there is, I, I feel that, that there is that overvalorization. And we don't look at some of the other people who have laid down their lives to further this country. And I think in terms of the civil rights struggle where the freedom riders were getting on buses and they are going to places like Aniston, Alabama, knowing full well what's waiting for them there. And they got on the bus unarmed and they went anyways. And they were black, they were white, they were Jewish, they were Christian, they were men, they were women. I don't think, you know, I'm pretty brave when I got a Marine Corps rifle platoon behind me, but I don't think I had that kind of courage to walk across the Pettus Bridge and see that line of cops and dogs and everything else and just link arms and just, you know, we should be really valorizing that kind of stuff as much as anything else. And having said that, though, I think it is important to recognize some of the things that some of our people in the military have, have done. But it should not be a us versus them. Like, I'm better than you uh, because I win. And I, and I do feel that. I, I do hear it I do feel it and I don't know what to do about it in, in this context except to remind these individuals as we talk to them and let them know that you know this is a this is the the path that you're walking and it's a great path thank you for doing that but there's other people doing some great things in this country too and now when you're done being a veteran you're not done there's an expectation for you to continue to be a citizen just in a different way whether it's team Rubicon or whether it's The like I said, the fine work of voter registration or something like that. But yes, I I definitely see and I feel that. I I don't know what to how to correct that on the larger stage, um, except on the individual. Like I said, talking to that young soldier at Fort Lewis and putting his or her service in that proper context so they it isn't puffed out, it isn't I'm better than them, and my idea and my feelings and my opinion is better than yours because I wore this uniform because we all know that that's not the case and I think one of the great things though about the military that's different than everything else is that we're all when you join the military you are forced to stand next to a man or a woman that you likely would never have stood next to before in your life when I was standing next to the first person I've ever stood next to with a southern accent and then on the other side it was a guy from Guam and then across from me, there was a guy from Texas. People, I would never have met these people before. And they were forcing this crazy crucible that's Marine Corps boot camp. And as a result, you find out really it is about the content of character of this individual. Not the color of their skin, not their accent, not their religion, none of those things. It is about the content of their character. And I think if we can concentrate when we see somebody who's a veteran uh, maybe running for office or is talking, we say, okay, Let's hear about more than just about their service as a veteran. And let's see what that content of character is. So that's kind of where I try to go with it is that content of character component to everybody. What are you doing? So if you're doing that work of registering voters and and changing the direction of this country with this election, man, that's what I'm talking about. If you wore a uniform, that's awesome. What are you doing now? Okay. Are you moving the ball forward? Are you part of the team? That's kind of where I'm at, and uh, Chris and I and you and Team Rubicon. Sometimes we saw that toxic uh, veteran mentality that you know it's us versus them, and then we had to remind people. know, I I think all three of us had to remind people that's not us versus them. We're all together in this. You know, you made your choice to go into service. Okay, awesome. Thank you for doing that. You're in Team Rubicon, and you're helping people uh, in on the worst day of their life in a disaster. Great. So keep doing that, but you don't get to. You know, put yourself on a pedestal, and if somebody tries to put you on a pedestal, thank them and then get off the pedestal.
0: <laughs> yeah, Becky, do you have any any reflections on that?
2: I do. I'm just captivated by everything Michael says, so I, I lose I lose track of what I was going to say. But um, so, Michael, just thank you for those reflections, and you're reminding me about just what a powerful crucible the military service is, where. Everyone, everyone has the experience of subordinating their their uh, their own self-interest in service of something bigger than themselves, which is, uh, we need more of that. And so kudos to the national service, any form of national service, I think, is essential because I think that's, that is character-developing. And I wonder how many people get to have experiences like that, where they're truly subordinating their own self-interest for the good of the whole. And so that that does get chiseled, etched in stone, I think, in the, in the soul of, of a, someone who serves, whether it's in the military or, or as a firefighter, wherever that may be. And so I think it's incredibly important. important. And so I wonder if instead of over the veterans, which I feel like um, – I don't know. I can only speak to it personally, really. Like whenever people are like, thank you for your service, I'm like, you're welcome. Um, Nothing bad happened to me. (laughs) Like I think about I always feel sheepish and like I don't really deserve that. It was I was happy to do it. And the things that were hard forged my character and I don't regret them for a second, you know? And so they were, they were gifts. They were real gifts to me. And so, um, I know that's not everybody's experience, but, and I know among the younger vets now, they kind of sarcastically be like, thank you for their service. And they don't, you know what I mean? Like, it's just a, it's almost a joke. Right. And so there's a tokenism to it. I think that's, um, that I think is kind of irritating. Um, so instead of val- overvalorizing, what if we got curious about what it is that's distinctive about that experience and could make that more widespread? Is this happening with AmeriCorps, with, with all these other forms of service, which I think are so essential? There's one other thing that I wanted to share. Oh. Dave, you put in the chat about civic privilege. <laughs> that really, so I just want to confess something. I hope that nobody in my local community sees this. I hope they do. I hope everyone gets to see this, but I'll share that I don't usually talk about being a veteran very much. It's not It's not what I lead with. I don't feel like it's an essential aspect of my identity. It's part of my past and part of who I am. Absolutely, it's forged who I am, but it, it's not like, it's not my A card, right? But uh, after the murder of George Floyd, a group of people in our community organized and got started, really paying more attention to what is the actual civilian oversight of our police force, and and does our police force have policies and procedures that are in keeping, that are that are the least likely to result in. The murder of, of one of our fellow residents, right? And our community's police commission was effectively a booster club. They would get together once a month and be like, good job, you know, and, and we do have a really good police, for as far as things go, we've got a really good police force here right now, um, who's led by someone incredibly competent, who I think her, that her heart is in the right place. But there's very little civilian oversight. And so I got on the police commission, and you bet your bottom dollar, I let them know I was a veteran. You know, like that's my veteran privilege, right? Because I got on the police commission unapologetically as a reformer, right? As like, listen, I will believe this till I die, that until every black and brown person in my community says they feel safe around a police officer, we don't have public safety. I don't care what your policies are, I don't care what your procedures are, until they feel safe, we don't have public safety. So whatever you gotta do so that they feel safe too, our work is not done that's my only position on the police commission right that's my only position what enables me to unapologetically hold that line is occasional reminders that i am a veteran <laughs> because of this over and so i hate to say it i don't know i'm just like that i'm like you know there's a little thank you for your service becky margiata hanging off of a light pole somewhere in my community right now and you know what good they should know that right because Because the same people who overly valorize our police also overly valorize veterans, and they might give me some more credibility. They're not going to dismiss me as some radical lefty, right? And I don't even think that that's a radical left position. I think like, hey, let's not murder people is actually a very reasonable position, right? But the fact that I'm a veteran, I can leverage that civic privilege, and, and and I'm doing that. And so I don't know if that's like a good idea or a bad idea, but I just want to offer to any veterans who are listening, you do have civic privilege, so use it. Use it to reinforce your humanity, right? Like you can set the example in ways that other people can't, in, in really powerful ways.
1: Thanks, Becky. And then Becky um, that, was, that was great. And uh, my wife and I, we talk about that. My wife, who's an Army veteran, she, she shared, you know, that I, we are all, we're so much, you know, she's Latina. You know, a veteran, a mom, a grandmother—all these different things. You know, where are Black Lives Matter, we support the police. We have friends who are police officers. You know, we are all these different things, and then we just get lumped together in, in in just these little boxes, and and it just really it it, it sets us back. It, it gets it's it tough, and I think so many of us are all these different things, and and we can stand up and say, yeah, I am Black Lives Matter. In, in our front yard, there's an American flag. There's an Army flag, a Marine Corps flag, a gold star a banner with two gold stars because my wife's grandfather died on Okinawa, and, and a Black Lives Matter flag. We're all mm-hmm. we're all those yeah. things. And, yeah. and I think that's important. I think, you know, going back to your, one of your questions, Ken, that is where we have to go. Like everybody I'm looking at right now, you guys are a bunch of things. You guys are not just one... Thing. we're not a monolith here and so as a veteran i'm not a monolith. i'm proud as hell of being a marine i'm proud of being a firefighter as soon as i can realize that geez i'm actually a therapist i'm gonna be proud of being a therapist too i just i can't believe they're letting me be a therapist but okay so i'm, I'm all these different things i'm a ballroom dancer yeah i'm all these different things so and i think that's what we are we need to that together and, and, and mold it into that citizenship package of being all these different things. And that's how we move that ball forward.
0: But Mike, I was going to ask you to, uh, to bring us home and you nailed it. Thank you so much, Becky and Mike, for not just joining us today, but for sharing your uh, your incredible wisdom. Thank you to the National Conference on Citizenship for the award and for the opportunity to host this bonus live episode of Rebuilding America. We would love to hear from you. Which episode did you find most enlightening? Let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and share your favorite episode with a friend. And if you enjoyed this series, you might also enjoy my podcast, Burn the Boats. I interview politicians, leaders, and activists about current events and difficult decisions in this bi-weekly series from Evergreen Podcasts. Want to get paid, gain skills, and make a difference in your community? A service year may be just what you're looking for. Apply today at serviceyear.org podcast. Rebuilding America is a production of Evergreen Podcasts, made in partnership with New Politics. Our producer is Isabel Robertson. Associate producer is Leon Pescador. Audio engineer is Sean Rule Hoffman. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers, Joan Andrews, Michael DeLoya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Rebuilding America, a podcast about national service.